Hello. Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we'll be looking at Whoso List to Hunt, I Know Where Is an Hind by Thomas Wyatt. So we're going we're going to the earliest point thus far in our little trajectory of poetry where we're zipping up and down through time looking at different poems and different poets. So before this I guess the earliest poet we looked at was well maybe not actually probably the earliest poem we looked at so far was perhaps um an anonymous poem and that was a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the cherry tree carol. And that was predated fifteen hundred, perhaps I'm not sure. So that was probably our earliest poem. So this is our earliest poem by a by by an, an author or a poet whose name we know at least, who's not anonymous. And so we've looked at Shakespeare before, but this is something written before before Shakespeare was uh, properly publishing his poems, even before he was born. Actually, <laughs> yes, it was a couple of years before. I think Wyatt died a couple of years before Shakespeare was born. I know there's some pedants out there that can, can sort me out and correct me on that one if I'm wrong. But um, Thomas Wyatt lived from 1503 to 1542. And he is, I mean, this this podcast is called Rusty Sonnets. But the sonnet we're looking at today is is a sonnet penned by Thomas Wyatt. And Thomas Wyatt is very much, he's credited with bringing the sonnet to England so he is he is the father of the English sonnet now poets such as Spencer and Shakespeare they brought their own take on the the sonnet and they reinvented the sonnet for for the English language to make it more suited for the 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 different sonic aspects of the English language but Wyatt was the first guy really to sort of bring the sonnet back to England and he followed on in that sort of tradition because he was an ambassador. He had an ambassadorial role. So he was going to France and he was heading off to Italy. And he was a big fan of the Italian, the very famous Italian sonneteer Petrarch. And Petrarch's collection of sonnets, the uh, Canzionere. So I hope I pronounced that right. And so he, he started writing sonnets himself in English. Now, the interesting thing about this is that that um, he translated a lot of Petrarch's poems as well, and today's poem is a, is is it is a translation of a Petrarch poem, but it's quite loose a translation, and it's interesting that the poem is often read in the context of Thomas Wyatt's life and his love life and things he got into a little bit of trouble for as well. So let's rewind a little bit into his biography. And I think we'll talk about Petrarch a little bit more as well. And how Petrarch shaped the sonnet genre as well. Because um, a sonnet is, is, is in, in its own way, it's a genre or it contains, the sonnet tradition contains genres as well as, as being a, a technical form for writing poetry. So Thomas Wyatt was born in 1503. He died in 1542. He worked as an ambassador, as I said, for Henry VIII in the court of Henry VIII. He married Elizabeth Brooke um, and he had a son called Thomas. He ended up separating from Elizabeth Brooke, but was told in, in, in quite strong terms to uh, make up with her and get back together with her near the end of his life. So he, he knew his father worked for Henry VIII. So he knew Henry VIII and worked for Henry VIII since he was 13. I think it was a kind of page to Henry VIII maybe a squire, I'm not sure. And then 
he started to take on roles in the court and became an ambassador. Now, it's interesting that this role as an ambassador, being someone who is doing business, obviously, with these other countries on the continent, but then he's sort of bringing back aspects of the poetry as well. And this happened before with a gentleman who wrote a very famous Middle English sequence of poems, Geoffrey Chaucer. So Geoffrey Chaucer, the, the, the author of the Canterbury Tales, who wrote in Middle English, he was also inspired by um, Italian poets and the Italian ways of writing and the Italian uses of rhyme, for instance. And Chaucer is actually the guy who's credited for bringing sort of iambic pentameter into English poetry. I've spoken about iambic pentameter a number of times in this podcast, and I'll probably speak about it a little bit more again when we're going over the poem. But I will start to record some bonus episodes very soon that will deal with technical aspects of a poem so I don't have to explain them all the time. So at some point in the future, I will say, oh, listen to this poem. And if you're listening to this podcast a little bit late, you might even be able to find them already. So if it's a few months after I've recorded it, you might be able to look on a playlist on SoundCloud or wherever and and see episodes about these technical aspects. But anyway, Chaucer brought iambic pentameter back to the UK. And um, and so this was following on from that tradition, but this time it's the sonnet that is being popularised in the courts. And now we know that the sonnet was a very popular courtly art form. It was a way of, of getting favour with the king or the queen if you could show skill in the writing of sonnets, if you could flatter the regent with your sonnet writing skills. You could you could do very well out of it. Um, a famous example, it wasn't a sonnet, but um, Spencer, who obviously is well known for his own sonnet, and especially the, his, just like Shakespeare, he, he brought out his own variant of a sonnet that other people chose to write from as well. That's the Spencerian sonnet. But he, he actually wrote a play called The Fairy Queen for Henry VIII's daughter, Elizabeth I. And she and she was the sort of inspiration for this for this long poem, this adventurous poem, this fairy tale poem. And he um and and she he he received a lifetime's pension as a reward for it. So yeah, this was serious business in the court. So so the sonnet really wasn't a popular art form in that sense. It wasn't something like the ballad, which is of the people. It was very much tied up with the machinations and and the maneuvers of the court. And and it was a great way of showing your intelligence, showing your skill and winning favour and perhaps getting promoted. And so maybe Wyatt's, to, I, I don't know for sure, Wyatt was a very formidable man by the look of him. So even though he died at a comparatively young age, especially by our, by our standards, during life he was a big, over six foot, strapping man. He was meant to be good at jousting and other physical activities and he certainly seemed to have a way with the ladies. Now we're beginning to circle around the subject matter for this particular poem. So going back to the sonnet, um, the sonnet art form, um, as Petrarch wrote it, um, he wrote it, there was a, the, the sort of muse for his sonnets was a, a young woman called Laura. And Laura has been, as I've explained in previous podcasts, Laura herself, um, she was a symbol of, of, she was the muse. So she wasn't just a woman that, that the, the poet wanted to go to bed with. She was also a symbol of attainment. Um, the muse in a lot of, in the sonnet tradition, particularly the Italian sonnet tradition, the muse was almost unattainable. You could never quite 
touch her. She was pure. She was beyond the reach of the poem. So there's always this atmosphere of longing within the within the traditional Italian sonnets and the way it's found its way into the English court. Now, later on, of course, Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, became the, the perfect subject for these kinds of sonnets. One, because she could easily become, you know, you could flatter your monarch what by making her the unattainable muse within your poem and so there's a great tradition of people writing these love poems to the unattainable queen herself and winning good favor in the court now this is before elizabeth um was was the queen henry the eighth is the king and we all know about henry the eighth and we all know that henry the eighth didn't have the most smooth and plain sailing love life although it could not even arguably say, be said that it was even less so for the poor women that had to marry him. So we know perhaps one of the most famous examples because um, I can't remember the order. My daughter knows this and recites it. She knows that old, um, uh, was it something, divorced, beheaded, died. Is it divorced? Yeah, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. I think that's the way it goes, doesn't it, with the six wives of Henry VIII. So, the, so and we know that he beheaded wives um, for, for varying reasons, because he was a very suspicious gentleman, but it also seemed to be the only way that he could marry the next woman as well. That seems to happen a lot. So, the, one of the most famous exam, famous wives of Henry VIII was Anne Boleyn. Now, Anne Boleyn was a a good friend of Thomas Wyatt. I think they knew each other as children. And when Anne Boleyn was arrested, and around the time, of course, she was beheaded, along with other men who were seen as part of a conspiracy um, for being unfaithful to Henry VIII, one of the men arrested for it was Thomas Wyatt. So Thomas Wyatt was suspected of having an illicit affair with the Queen, with Queen Anne Boleyn. It wasn't the last time he got into trouble. So he was eventually released. Um, it seems like this man was a very good ambassador in a lot of ways. I think he probably had some fantastic diplomatic skills because he seems to have got out of trouble in quite a few occasions in his life. So again, this big, strong, long-bearded, strapping, jousting, sensitive, poetry writing, hunting, intellectual man, what do you know, was very appealing to the ladies of the court. Uh, his his own wife actually he separated from his wife on the grounds of infidelity and i've got a feeling knowing the way things go the infidelity was probably his i haven't researched it well enough i'm pretty sure it was his his on his end i'd be glad to be corrected so um he he was arrested and he was eventually released he was so they eventually they they decided that he was innocent i guess because if he wasn't innocent his head would have been stuck on a pike um it's also meant to be that he actually was able to watch the execution of Anne Boleyn from his cell in the tower and he was able to see the execution of the other men who were executed with her as well he got into trouble again or he was he was he got back from his travels and he was immediately arrested for treason and this time it was Catherine Howard who the uh, another wife of Henry VIII who was beheaded the second beheaded she she argued for um for, for clemency and so she, I guess the king was convinced and the king the king let him go again and he died a couple of years later than that. He he got quite ill. One of the grounds for him being released the second time round was, was that he reunite with his wife. And it's said also that Henry VIII was actually considering um, Thomas Wyatt's wife as 
as a as a future queen as a future wife and so but she was still married <laughs> to thomas wyatt so i'm um, you know elizabeth brooks so i um i i don't know what the plan was there it almost makes you suspect a little bit of skullduggery in this man who died while still in his 30s um he had a son as well um who was um I think he had. It was also called Thomas Wyatt. I think yes, and he was part of the Wyatt Rebellion against Queen Mary. So he it, he was part of a Protestant Protestant conspiracy against Queen Mary to insert um, Elizabeth I on the throne. Now Elizabeth I did end up on the throne, but I think that first rebellion didn't go too well because um, he was executed. So back to Thomas Wyatt his poetry and his life and then we'll read the poem we'll just go over a couple more things before we read the poem so this poem we're going to look at is well we're reading this in the context of his friendship with Anne Boleyn and the suspicions even of him having an affair with Anne Boleyn and it's just I, I won't go into it too much actually I think I think it's time I think we've looked, seen enough biogra biographical detail I think it's time to read the poem Whoso list to hunt, I know where is Anne Hind, by Thomas Wyatt. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is Anne Hind, but as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore, I am of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleer for four, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, Sivens in a net, I seek to hold the wind. Who list her hunt? I put him out of doubt, As well as I may spend this time in vain, And graven with diamonds in letters plain, There is written her fair neck round about. Nole me tangere, for Caesar's I am, And wild for to hold, though I seem tame. I'm not sure how penetrable that poem was, but we can go through the basic meaning of it and then we'll look at the context of it within the tradition of the sonnet, what makes it work as a sonnet, why, why, how do we judge it as a sonnet, and then of course we will look at how it plays into that intrigue and that story and the suspicions about him and Anne Boleyn. So... Let me just try and plain English the poem at you first. So this is one of the earliest poets we're looking at, and I'm not going to go much earlier than poems in what we call modern English. Now, people would probably say this poem is in Elizabethan because we re immediately associate this kind of language with William Shakespeare. It's still a dialect of modern English, and it's obviously not Elizabethan in the sense that Elizabeth was not in charge of a country at the time that this poem was written. It was Henry VIII. So I'll, I'll run through the lines and I'll give a plain English, sort of, you know, a modern English as in a modern, modern English <laughs> reading of it. So, whoso list to hunt, I know where is Anne Hind. So, whoso list to hunt, whoever, whoever's up for a hunt, basically. He's starting it up, he's, he is, he, he's addressing the lads in this poem. So, who list to this, who list, <laughs> whoso list to hunt, I know where is Anne Hind. A hind is a female deer, a doe, a female red deer. But as for me, alas, I may no more. So, but, for, but for, so as for me, alas, alas is basically, I think it's Italian or Latin for alas, I may no more. 
the vain travail hath wearied me so sore i'm so tired from this from this hunt from this work i am of them that farthest cometh behind um, i am of those that sort of lag behind in the hunt there's these guys at the front of the pack and i'm the one who's dragging everyone down yet may i by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer but as she fleeth afore fainting i follow so um his mind is still focused on the deer and the deer is drawing him on even though he is falling further behind and he should give up that the image of a deer is driving him on even though he knows he cannot catch this deer and that summarized in the next line which is i leave off therefore sivens in a net i seek to hold the wind um, i leave off therefore since sivens means since since in a net i seek to hold the wind that's as good an image an example of not being able to catch something as we can get trying to catch the wind in a net have you done that maybe you have maybe you're cool maybe you're special but most of us can't catch the wind in a net who list her hunt i put him out of doubt so who does want to hunt her even after i've said this i will leave no doubt in your mind as well as i may spend his time in vain so yeah you'll be you will be just as spent as i am trying to catch this deer and then we have the final final image in the final four lines of the poem and graven with diamonds in letters plain there is written her fair neck round about nole me tangere for caesar's i am and wild for to hold though i seem tame so um graven means engraved round her neck the letters so there's something engraved on some kind of plate round this deer's neck which is the letters um nole me tangere for caesar's i am you you cannot touch me do not touch me nole me tangere it's latin for do not touch me for caesar's i am so um yeah I'll, I'll quickly give some detail about this so this is um it's meant to be that white deer weren't allowed to be hunted for up to 300 years they were after the death of caesar they were caesar's property and so um yeah and it's meant to be the white deers would have these would literally have these mantles around their necks if they were caught they would have these things put around their necks just to remind people do not do not hunt this deer it's the property of caesar and you'll be in trouble you'll be in trouble um and wild for to hold though i seem tame now there's a last line that thinks where just in case we didn't think already that's the last line that says well this isn't about deer isn't it because the the, the the metaphor holds doesn't it all the way through it he's talking about reasons not to hunt this deer you can't catch this deer sorry you know you just uh this deer, deer is uncatchable you'll be lagging behind in the hunting party like me you know of course there's something else we think this poem is about but um but but for now the deer metaphor holds but the last bit and wild for to hold hold though i seem tame i guess it does make sense why would you want to you know why would you want to hold a wild deer i get it like if a if a deer it still works actually if a deer is tame then if you snuck snuck up on a tame deer and jumped on it and i reckon that chances are it's meant to be how our hunter gatherers um ancestors probably hunted actually when they had hand axes they had to get up close and personal with an animal before they could get it with their hand hand axe i was doing a very good sort of stabbing motion there which made no sense and i made the noise to go with that 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 
that's just nonsense and I'm going to leave it in. So you get it though. You, you don't sneak up on a deer to give it a cuddle, do you? I mean, if you're hunting deer, then you're, and you're not doing it with dogs, I guess, you know, which is barbaric enough as it is. But if you're hunting a deer with a crossbow or an arrow, you're not going to get that close to actually, you know, grab the deer or come here or you're a bit wild to hold. You know what I mean? You're not sneaking up. Hunting is not sneaking up on deer for cuddles, is it? But I get it. A deer looks very tame. You you look watch a deer from a distance. They look very nice. But that deer, at the same time, can proper mess you up. You know, that deer can just run at you, butt, butt you with its head. Or um, even the, the deer could like, you know, if it's got antlers, you're in even bigger trouble if it's a stag. So, yeah, I get it. There's a placid look of a deer, but actually they are wild. Even though wild to hold, let's face it, we know what this poem is about, don't we? We know that it's not really a deer. The deer is a woman. And we know this for a few reasons. One, because it's a it's a sonnet. And it is actually a translation of Petrarch, but it's quite a loose translation of Petrarch. And there do seem to be differences in this poem. Um, the framing of the poem. So in the original Petrarch poem, it is like, oh, I just happened upon this white deer. This white deer came into view. That seems to be more the emphasis of the Petrarch version of the poem. Where this is him telling people, this is no, this is a deer you can't hunt. Oh, I know where the deer is, but you won't be able to catch her. So there's no point. There's no point. You'll just be like trying to catch a catch wind in a net. And anyway, also, <laughs> um, she's the property of Caesar. She probably the deer probably was even though it seemed the 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 poem by Petrarch seems more about a deer. It's um it's still kind of about Laura the Petrarch poem, but I think there's even less doubt that the deer in this poem is of course it's an allegory for a woman, but actually, do not pursue this woman. Oh, we all want this woman, but we cannot pursue her. Um, why can't you pursue her? Because she's already rebuffing your advances. So I think that the first opening eight lines of the poem, the the, the sonnet, and that's what we would call the octave. Um, the first eight lines are just about how he's been pursuing her, but he has become tired of pursuing her and weary, even though he hasn't been able to shake her from his head. So it's the classic unrequited love that we find in plenty of sonnets and the muse being something too high above. Now, the interesting thing is actually the property of Caesar line comes with the um, in, with the Petrarch version, but it feels much more apt, much more apt in the Thomas Wyatt version, because if we do think that Anne Boleyn is, is the Laura of this poem, then... The final lines about the deer being the property of Caesar and Nole me tangere, which is meant to be from the the um, the New Testament, one of the New Testaments, and it's meant to be something that Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, or possibly something that's said between them, "Do not touch me." Um. So, so he, so yes, this 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 line is said, "Nole me tangere." And it is very much for property. So the property of Caesar, Caesar is now Henry VIII in this poem. If the deer is Anne Boleyn, then, then Henry VIII is the owner. But then there's that little bit at the end, which is... Nole me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. So wild for to hold... You know, that's the thing again. She's a lady. She's a gentle lady of court, but there is a wilderness wildness to her. Now, it could be that this poem is about an unrequited love between Thomas Wyatt and Anne Boleyn. If Anne Boleyn is the woman and Wyatt, you know, it just seems white. You know, the fact that he was arrested 
and put in the tower on suspicion of being adulterous with her um, or, or committing adultery against the king with her then you, you do think who else could this poem be about who else could it be about you know so um so we, we yeah we we think it's about Anne Boleyn don't we 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 know it's about Anne Boleyn it's a, or it's a pretty good guess that it's about Anne Boleyn so how does this we've already looked a little bit of a, the similarities between Petrarch and Thomas Wyatt um what else can I say about Thomas Wyatt there's a few biographical details I missed out which I might go into in a minute but firstly Let's look at how it works as a sonnet as well. So we've looked at Shakespearean sonnets and we've looked at poems which are blends of Shakespearean sonnets and Petrarchan sonnets. Um, so this is a Petrarchan sonnet, though the, the ending, the final sestet, uh, varies a little bit. So it's normally made up of two parts, uh, Petrarchan sonnet. So it's written in iambic pentameter. Now the first line is almost like it's written as an Alexandrine. Alexandrines are more in Latin and in ancient um, Roman and Greek literature, Alexandrines are um, a line of, of, of 12 syllables with six stresses, I think. Although stresses might be more of an English language thing than... than but yeah, 12 syllable lines. So, whoso list to hunt, I know where is an hind. Now that's stretching the pentameter a little bit, that first line. Um, I can count six stresses there, you know. Whoso list to hunt there's three stresses there whoso list to hunt i know where is and hind so it could be sort of in iambic pentameter if we don't consider is as a stressed syllable so whoso and then list and then hunt and where and hind and is and is a sort of slightly stressed syllable but not stressed enough for us to count it as one of the beats in the poem the rest of it follows more familiar iambics after that. So we have the first eight lines, and the eight lines, as I said, the octave is all about his particular pursuit of this deer and why he's exhausted, why he won't hunt it anymore. And then the sestet changes. It's sort of once again, so there's normally something that we call a turn in Italia in a sonnet, and it happens normally after the eighth line. Um, that's a change of emphasis in the poem change of direction or a change of mood the volta the turn and so after the eighth line we begin a final sestet which is the second part of the poem of an italian sonnet who list her hunt i put him out of doubt as well as i may spend this time in vain so it's, it changes the thing which is he's once again addressing these men but finally saying look if this doesn't convince you this will convince you she's the property of caesar mate keep your hands off or you'll be in trouble so even though there is an alluring wildness beneath her timid, tame ways. So it follows the Italian in that sense. The rhyming scheme is a little bit different, um, which is that uh, it's a quite a regular rhyme scheme. So A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A for the first eight lines, meaning um, there's only two, A and B are the only rhyming sounds in the first eight lines of the poem. So... A rhymes are hind, behind, mind, and the I rhyme of wind. And then the uh, B rhyme is more, saw, and a four, and therefore, 
So there's a lot of four rhymes, right? You know, um, it's just called rhyme rich, actually, where the, the, the syllable before is the one that really dictates the rhyme because the, the end rhyme is actually just repeating. So four, four. Um, but when we go into the sestet, um, we have doubt, vain, plain, and about I am and tame. So again, a bit of an I rhyme. Um, but yes, so plain, I am, tame. So yeah, doubt, vain, plain about am tame so it's sort of i guess it's c d d and then c e e i'd say vain and plain they're and an assonant rhymes with tame but sort of it's more am and tame the i rhyme of am and tame um, an i rhyme is when words look the same but they don't actually rhyme so they're spelt with the same end letters but they don't actually make the same sound when you pronounce them so it looks similar to the i but it is not similar when it's spoken aloud. Um, a quick, I'm going to insert this quick note now about Thomas Wyatt. So um, much like um, John Donne, actually, Thomas Wyatt was a poet who obviously was enjoyed, in, whose poets were enjoyed in court, but they were poems that he circulated between friends in little manuscripts. They weren't really published until after he died, so they weren't produced as books until after he died. But this is the courtly tradition, this happens quite a lot. That poems are actually known more in sort of folios that are sort of swapped between people and find their audience that way. It's, it's a more smaller, more selective audience. And of course, this allows you to write more stuff that might get you in trouble. So. So we, we we again like if we were looking at if we were to Henry VIII looking at this poem and looking at the deer as Anne Boleyn, um, would we incriminate him based on this poem? Well, there's a few things, isn't there? Firstly, I suppose I suppose he could always have a defence of, but I'm just writing about a deer. That's his first defence, isn't it? Thomas Wyatt could just say it's just a poem about a deer, mate. I don't know what you're talking about. I like cuddling deers. I like cuddling wild deers, really tame deers. I like to sneak up give them a hug and feel them go crazy in my big, strong, manly, jousting arms. That's what he might have thought. But um, so that could be in defence number one. Defence number two is an even better defence. It's a translation, mate. It's not as word for word, but my Italian's a bit ropey. Or uh, well, we could talk a bit more about translation in a minute, actually. So he's... Yeah, so he could say it's a translation of a poem by Petrarch. So why don't you arrest Petrarch? of trying to seduce the queen instead hey so there's that defense and of course the final defense is of course that i didn't do anything you know well i mean maybe trying it on is bad enough but basically the whole poem seems to be saying i never caught the deer i never caught and no one can catch the deer because she belongs to the king so it could just actually be a, you know maybe he's doing the, the king a favor by saying don't try it on with you know he's written a poem saying don't try it on with the queen so there's another line in his defense so translation is an interesting beastie because yes so this is very much there are varying degrees of translation so the first degree of translation would be if i took a poem and i just translated it as literally as i could word for word and so I translate it into English so that you would read the poem in its original language to get a sense of the music of the language. And then you would read the translation for the sense of the language. So but we know a lot of translations, they're not like that. They try to recreate the music of the poem. And now what normally happens here is you have to change things. So in order to make a poem 
to translate a poem and then make it rhyme in the same way as the original, you have to swap words over. You have to substitute new words. You have to make changes in the poem to do that. So it could be that you're still trying to portray the music and the message of the poem, but you have to change some of the details. There's normally stuff you just have to let go of. When you're writing a poetical translation... It can't just be a literal translation. Something's always going to get lost or something new is going to be brought in or some kind of inventive creativity has to happen in order to make it work. And Don Patterson, who I spoke about not too long ago, um, and actually I'm reading this. I read um, this is from a fantastic book called 101 Sonnets. There you can hear the pages riffling in my hands. 101 Sonnets by Don Patterson. It's got a fantastic introduction about the sonnet really fantastic essay and some brilliant poems he's got quite a loose definition of the sonnet so there's poems within this they're all 14 lines long and that's it within this within this book but um i have to say this is the book of poetry i've bought for people more often than any other one because it's cheap <laughs> and two well 7.99 last time i bought it by the look of it and um and two i just like giving it because i like getting people into sonnets especially people from the spoken word and performance poetry traditions i like i like getting them into sonnets so don patterson said uh, said something when he did some translations translations of the sonnets of orpheus by rilke and he spoke about versioning and so he that idea of actually writing a poem that tries to copy the music as and the form of a poem as well as the actual information of a poem but always has to make some kind of changes to make all these aspects and elements play well with each other he called it versioning so if i did write something very literal even in in a normal paragraph even if the poem has a certain form and shape and i just write a normal paragraph of translation that would be a translation whereas he says that when you are actually trying to reproduce the poem in another language in the same formal aspects then he calls it a version because that's it's a version of the poem rather than a translation because the creativity of a translator uh, you have to be a poet to translate it in that way as well and so the skill and the creativity of the poet makes it a little bit theirs as well as the poets that they're translating so that's the difference between a version of a poem and a translation. And I think I quite like that. I quite like having that distinction, translations and versioning. But you can go even further. Um, I, I like rewriting versions of poems by the Chinese poet Li Bai. And I often write after Li Bai because I change it so much. I change waterfalls to the fronts of skyscrapers, you know, of the glass sort of rippling with light. Um, and I try to be quite inventive in making the poems that are written about rural China, about London. So that would be perhaps even more than a version where there's a frame of the old poem. And I write after Lee Bai to, to knowledge where the poem came from. But at the same time, it probably is quite a lot my poem. But I can't say it's entirely my poem. I have to acknowledge the original poet that inspired me. So I think this poem by Thomas Wyatt is sort of some, somewhere in between. It's sort of a version of a poem, but it's still not that faithful. And you could really say that he's made it his own because he has, he has used it to shine a light or express something about his own personal situation. But he's doubly clever for doing that because he gets the ultimate defense of, oh, this is a translation of another poet's work. What do you mean I'm writing a love poem about your wife? Um, your your majesty no 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 it's a translation of petrarch there's this woman called laura oh I'm, i've said this in previous episodes but laura you know she represents represents poetic achievement and um and the, the term poet laureate actually comes from laura and the idea of and and in turn 
poets used to get laurels placed on their heads as by winning competitions in roman times so laura comes from that as well so the name laura comes from the laurels that were placed as crowns on poets heads um so that's where laureate comes from poet laureate i think that's about enough about that poem but it is now time to wander off on one and wander off on one is when i drop all pretenses at academic rigor and just see where my mouth and my brain will lead me for the final 10 to 5 to 10 minutes of the episode so it's i i wander off on one the acronym of wander off on one is woo and there's only one man on the planet who can say woo better than anyone else thank you rick flair it is time for me to wander off on one i think i'm going to talk about wanting stuff desire and being i one one thing that really sticks to me about that that poem apart from obviously the final image in the i belong to caesar thing that's written there um maybe some guys wouldn't take that as a as a reason would they <laughs> i belong to caesar perhaps that would add to the intrigue and in how much you want it but i do think about desire and want and what it does with us and there is an interesting thing there where that he recognizes that he is someone at the back of the hunt he's someone that's falling behind but his want and his desire drives him onwards and I think I'm about to give a little bit of self-helpy advice, which is about our goals and about things that we go for and what would could be conducive to a happy life. I think I've spoken, I think that our culture sometimes is really summed up by the TV talent show. I think it's it really finds its purest ingredients. So especially the need for fame that happens in this day and age or the need to be seen as the most successful person in a particular realm um i was watching a tv talent show with my wife and we were watching all the different acts and it was acts that had been on tv talent shows before um me and my wife looked at the acts and and yes they were getting their big moment on tv but actually they were real variety acts which meant that they they just toured around the country probably doing a lot of holiday camps and stuff like that and maybe provincial theatres so maybe not major theatres in the cities but theatres in towns where people know them as these people that are on this TV talent show and they pay a bit of money to go and see them at the weekend or during the week or whatever, and that there's actually quite a good living to be made from this. So you might not be front page of a newspaper famous. You might not be super going viral famous. You might not be trending on Twitter famous, but your fame is enough for you to make a few bucks and pay the rent and keep a roof over your head and travel around to some smaller, cosier venues in towns that probably don't get the uh, the, the 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 most cutting-edge um, pieces of culture coming within their vicinity. That just sounded weird, didn't it? The most cutting-edge pieces of culture coming within their vicinity. Who were... Uh, that's me just trying to say something and sound a lot smarter than I actually am, isn't it? so it's me trying to be polite and being more insulting so you know towns for instance i went on tour once uh many years ago and we went up to ulverston and we did a reading in the sort of the, the bar venue above a theater and um i like ulverston it's where sam san laurel came from and it's also near the lake district which is obviously wordsworth country and it's absolutely beautiful up there but i'll always remember being in the uh being in the upstairs space and then the man um being doing a poetry reading and a man coming in who was like the technical manager, I guess, of the venue and him saying really excited about who they had coming in. And it was Voulez-vous. 
which is an ABBA tribute band called Voulez Vu. There's a lot of ABBA, ABBA tribute bands, but I hadn't heard of that one before. No offence to Voulez Vu if they're listening, but he was really impressed that they had a laser show. He was like, it's ABBA, but with a laser show. And how can you compete when you're a poet against ABBA with a laser show? So um, that, those kind of venues. So the guys who kind of do well in certain talent shows and certain singing contests, they do well in those venues. But that's what I liked about them. People might look at them like, oh, they're not really famous anymore. Hey, they're making a living. Good for them. I think there's more happiness in that than being one of the most famous people on the planet and then not being one of the most famous people on the planet. And you can't bring yourself to do those kinds of gigs because everyone will know that you're a has-been, I guess. So, you know, that, that we we were watching this talent show and saying, good for them. You know what I mean? They, I think they found a happy medium. They're still doing their act. They're still touring. They might not be doing like the Royal Albert Hall all the time or whatever. They might not be doing Wembley. They might not be doing the O2 Arena. But hey, they're making a living. They're doing well. Good for them. Um, so what are your goals? I think this is where I'm going now. So yeah, how do you find happiness? And I think this is a really, yeah, I'm about to tell you now. I've just snuck it into the secret to happiness at the end of this episode. Um, what I'm struck by was that image of him thinking of a deer and the deer image of a deer driving him onwards, even though it can't be possible. And so good life advice is normally to kind of set realistic goals, isn't it? Or to make, have, have temper your expectations um, and to find more satisfaction in the day to day doings. You know, if you can find that satisfaction in what you do every day, then you will live a happy life. Um, whereas if you delay happiness for when you achieve a certain goal then even if you achieve a certain goal that's it you've achieved it what you're going to be happy about now you know you've gained everything and lost everything at the same time and so it could be that the best thing to do is and again I think of him with his deer in his mind if a deer is perhaps not someone who really does not want to marry you right so that if that's your idea of happiness someone who really isn't into you but you feel you're drawn towards them. That's a miserable situation. But if a goal is something else, let's say you have a business that you really enjoy, but your goal is to become a very, very successful business person, uh, not even with billions, but with millions in a bank account. Now, let's say that you go through your life not making that, but you enjoy your work anyway, but you never achieve that goal. I think that's a better thing. I think that's a better thing than achieving the goal. Because... The goal, the aim of a goal is to direct you. The aim of a goal is to keep you moving. But that, but it's ultimately important for you to find satisfaction in the work that goes into finding that goal. So your goal should be big, but your progress should be small. I actually read that from a kind of a motivation dude called James Clear, but I think he's right. I think he's right about this one. So um, yes, huge goals that perhaps you will never attain but but be content with small steps towards them. Um, and I think that the happiest people are the people who lived happy, productive lives without achieving their goals. So I think actually I, I would have advised people many years ago to not go to not chase unrealistic goals. Now it's like don't chase them, but be, but be guided by them, be guided by unrealistic goals and be satisfied with the progress that you make towards them, even if you never get there. Um, so be really into climbing a mountain, even though ultimately the apex of the mountain will always be just beyond your reach. But if it's an amazing mountain to climb, then you're going to be happy. 
So that's the end of this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I enjoy delivering it. I enjoy putting it online and I always enjoy it when people listen to it. So if you want to do me a favor, you know what's coming. Please share it on your social media. Please click likes and leave nice reviews and anything that you're able to click likes or nice reviews. We're available on Spotify. Look at me using the Royal We. Um, available on Spotify, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher. There's an RSS feed, so you'll be able to download it as well via your favorite podcasting app. And... That that's it really. And if you but if you want to spread the word of the podcast or have a word in the gorgeous shell like of the deer that you are pursuing and hugging. So if there is a deer in the forest, a tame deer that you are sneaking up on and you decided that no, you are not going to shoot this deer in the haunch with your arrow. That's that's a bit rude, isn't it? But that this we're really talking about deer now. So if you're pursuing that deer and you got your bow and arrow out, and you really could shoot that deer right there and then, but you decide, no, I'm going to make like Thomas Wyatt give that deer a cuddle. Then um, while that deer is thrashing wildly in your in your in your embrace, as you muse on the contradiction, the seeming contradiction between its docile state and its sudden wildness when caught in an embrace, then and again, I'm only talking about deer here. Don't do this for people; it's not nice. I know it's not nice to do this with a deer, but it's nicer than shooting them with a crossbow. But if, you, if you're there with that deer and you're hugging that deer and it's thrashing away, then whisper gently in that deer's ear, listen to Rusty Sonnets, Nilo Sullivan's podcast. It's really good. He talks about old poems, some poems that I don't really understand, but actually he makes it much more fun to try and understand them. And I feel better equipped to look at all these older poems and get any reaching perspectives of them on my own after I've helped, he's helped guide me through it. My journey with the poem has just begun. And dear, dear, I think you should try this podcast, even though but I am a man and you are a butter deer that does not appreciate being cuddled and whispered to. If you can do that, that would be great. But otherwise, just tell someone. Tell someone about the podcast. That's fine as well. Thank you for listening. Have a really lovely weekend or whatever, wherever we are in time where you're listening to me. Um, have a good one. Bye bye.